Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you are in the field, the academy, or the clergy. In this episode, Dr. Tyler B. Davis interviews artist Mark Menjivar about using storytelling as a way to empathy and action. For a multimedia presentation of Menjivar's work, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to Open Plaza. I'm Tyler Davis, uh, an adjunct instructor at St. Mary's University and University of Incarnate Word in San Antonio. Um, I'm here with my friend, Mark Menivar, uh, who's a San Antonio-based artist uh, and professor in the School of Art and Design at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. Um, Mark's work explores a range of subjects uh, from refrigerators and songbirds to popular practices of luck um, his most recent, uh, I think it's your most recent uh, exhibit is in conjunction with the Texas After Violence Project. It's called Birds, Rats, Roses uh, and focuses on urgent matters of capital punishment in the state of Texas. Uh, Mark's work has been featured in many venues regionally and internationally. Mark, I'm not going to list all of your prolific work. Uh, there's so much. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Mark's work specifically around borders, borderlands, and migration. So thank you to HTI for hosting this conversation, and thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm excited to be talking with you today. Welcome. Well, I'm super, thank you, Tyler. Super excited to be here with you. So uh, before we get to your recent projects, um, could you tell us a bit about the path uh, that led you to your recent work, uh, especially around migration? Yeah, definitely. And I think that because in particular that um, that um, we're going to be talking about migration, I will begin by even sharing just a little bit of my own migration story with you. So uh, my father is from El Salvador. My mother is from Puerto Rico. And I was born on the East Coast in uh, Virginia. And then my father, um, you know, one of the interesting uh, things about his migration story is that he was born uh, or my grandparents, Domingo and Otilia, came to the United States in the early 1940s. And in 1945, he was born on U.S. soil, making him the only U.S. citizen in his family. But he was shortly orphaned after that and returned to El Salvador um, to be raised. And when he was 18, he um, came back to, um, to the United States and joined the U.S. military. Uh, my mother... Um, was uh, her father, uh, my grandfather, uh, Jose, was in the U.S. military, and so she was born uh, here in the States, but they ended up meeting at the University of Miami in Miami, Florida. And so because of my father's job, I ended up living uh, in Central America for the majority of my childhood in Panama, Honduras, uh, and mainly in El Salvador through the end of the 80s into, into 1990. Then um, I came uh, back to, uh, we came back to the U.S. and ended up landing in San Antonio in 1992. And so this is really where I consider home. Um, from San Antonio, part of my journey um, led me into the field of social work and studying social work at Baylor University, which I graduated with an undergraduate degree from there in the early 2000s, then ended up moving to Bolivia in uh, 2002 and working for an NGO for a couple years with women in prostitution and street kids and then came back to to San Antonio in 2004 
and found myself feeling kind of frustrated with the field of social work. Not that there was anything necessarily wrong with the, the tools and the places that I was working, but I found myself uh, more wanting to be able to explore more diverse uh, subjects and work with people in a different way. And that's what led me into the arts, primarily the field of photography. That was a long meandering uh, journey there to bring us up to kind of where we are today. And in particular, looking at kind of my life through the lens of migration. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, Mark. Um, fascinating. Um, and maybe just a follow up. Uh, I know you, you teach at Texas State. Uh, do you want to maybe talk about some of the classes that you teach there? Um, I do. Yeah, I'm a, an associate professor in the School of Art and Design, and I feel really lucky. I get to teach um, beginning classes in our foundations program. But then also I get to teach um, classes in the in upper level. So I teach some grad courses around exhibitions. I teach in an area called expanded media. So I teach um, uh, social practice classes, which are classes where um, we're looking at um, products that are participatory and collaborative, working with communities. And then I also teach some advanced audio classes as well. So. Wonderful, fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot I can just follow up with about those classes themselves. Um, but let's uh, let's turn to your work um, um, with, uh, especially maybe we can begin with your work with the Borderland Collective, um, which uh, describes itself as a long-term art and education project that uses collaboration to engage complex issues, uh, especially in the borderlands. Um, can you talk about how you came to be involved with the Borderland Collective um, in its work? And then specifically maybe about the Northern Triangle exhibit, um, one of the, you know, the installations you were involved with with them. Definitely. And, and Tyler, you just described it really beautifully, right? Borderline Collective, is a, it's a collective of artists and educators and youth and community members who are trying to engage with complex social issues, uh, primarily around borders. And we use that, that name or the, the word collective not to be exclusive, but really that anybody that we're working with can be a part of that collective. And we get invited um, to work in different communities on different projects. And over the past uh, 10 years um, that we have been in existence have worked with hundreds of people. Um, one of the projects specifically that we um, worked on and we'll talk a little bit about today is Northern Triangle. And so if you can like rewind in your brain back to 2014 um, and thinking about the headlines that were happening at that time, particularly um, on um, the United States southern border um, with Mexico, right? We had um, tens of thousands of women and, um, and, and unaccompanied children showing up seeking asylum as they were fleeing violence, uh, particularly from the Northern Triangle region, El Salvador, Guatemala, um, and Honduras, right? And so, um, so at that time, there was, there's a museum here in San Antonio called Blue Star Contemporary, and the director, Mary Heathcott, reached out to us and said, um, you know, said, can y'all do something um, in response? Can you find a way to, um, to help us to address what, what's happening. And so uh, my main collaborator, Jason Reed, who's also serves as the director of Borderland Collective, what we did is we just um, started um, thinking about our own histories. And I shared a little bit with you at the beginning of this, um, of, uh, of the, my time spent living in El Salvador and my father being from there. Um, but I had actually been going back to El Salvador from 2009 to about 2013, was going down every nine months, um, working with a small community in Santa Marta, which was a community that repatriated uh, or had to flee um, uh, to Honduras to, and lived in a refugee camp for about nine years, but then communally repatriated 
um, and it now has, um, they've all been living um, in, in this one town for years. And so we started to look at, um, at all our different stories and narratives were coming together. And we said, you know what? You can't understand what's happening at the border now unless we go back, unless you look at, at the history of US intervention in particular, right in the region. And so Northern Triangle, um, we formed, started a Northern Triangle, which is an exhibition that looks at US intervention in Central America, primarily in the, the Northern Triangle um, region over the past 100 years and how that is directly related to what's happening at the border. What was happening at the border in 2014, but I would argue that's still happening at the border in 2021. So this exhibition, it was maps, it was photographs, it was drawings, it was videos, oral history, histories and documents um, that really explore that history. And often for Borderland Collective, what we were doing is we were going into schools and working with young people and giving them the tools to be able to document their own life to, to kind of counter the narrative that is often um, given about, about particular communities. But for Northern Triangle, instead of going into classrooms, what we decided to do is try to turn the museum into a classroom and then let that um, be used by um, by community groups for their own purposes, but also to to kind of complicate the narrative in ways for for um, for visitors that were coming into these institutions. Yeah, I so it's a very expansive uh, installation, right? Both in terms of the timeline that you mentioned, trying to reframe what was happening in twenty fourteen and even the present in, in terms of the last hundred years, but it's also expansive in terms of materials uh, mm -hmm. that you just mentioned. Uh, I was fortunate to see the Northern Triangle. Um, I saw it at the Mayborn Museum uh, in Waco, Texas, and I think it was 2017 or 2018. You could yeah, probably, yeah. it was there, I think. But, and even as I understand it, it took some organizing efforts to get it shown at this museum, which you, you might want to talk about. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I was, I was really struck by the kind of the diverse materials, right? Um, um, you know, images and documents dealing with the history of intervention. Uh, hand-drawn pictures from children, photographs, and also an oral history kind of audio component as well, um, all kind yeah. of creating this really kind of expansive uh, experience. So yeah, could you maybe comment a bit more just on the archive or really the archives um, that you drew oh. from the triangle and how you saw those kind of working together and being activated together? Definitely. There was um, and one aspect that I didn't mention in the very beginning, but um, partnerships with with uh, NGOs and nonprofits was really important for the exhibition as well. And there was really uh, primarily two organizations that we partnered with, Raices, which is uh, provides um, uh, legal services for people seeking asylum, and then also the South Texas Human Rights Center. Uh, Eddie Canales from them is just absolutely amazing, and they provide um, humanitarian relief at the border, but also do a lot of advocacy work. So there, um, and both of them were represented in the exhibition. One um, visual from the South Texas Human Rights Center that was really powerful is they, they placed blue barrels out on private land in South Texas um, that just has water. Um, and then with a, um, a kind of uh, a flag up in the air so that people, when they, if they find themselves crossing and need, in need of water to not die, um, that is providing that basic level. And so Eddie um, gave us one of those blue barrels for the exhibition to put in. Also, Raices um, gave us drawings that were made by children in detention centers um, right after their parents had been, or they also, their families, um, had been detained by ICE and they had been separated from their parents. And when you look at those visuals, um, there is 
um, the trauma that they are suffering and that is incurring is so visible um, inside of those. There's also, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, some oral histories and Stacy Merck and Jack Elder are two um, uh, members of the sanctuary movement in the 1980s who were arrested and served time in federal prison um, and, in a, and in a halfway house. They have long been two of my heroes. Um, they live here in San Antonio. And so I did oral histories with each of them and their words um, would fill the gallery and them talking about the history of that time and making direct connections um, to, to work that was still being done in the community. There was also a, a big section of the exhibition that was dedicated to the United Fruit Company and to their interventions in countries and kind of looking at the, the um, uh, corporate interests inside of Latin America and how uh, they have so often benefited um, those in the north, but have um, caused havoc on families and communities um, in the south. And so, yeah, and I mean, there are uh, many other things as well, but we really tried to look at it not just from uh, from one angle, but looking at it from uh, from military, looking at it from the State Department, diplomatic uh, angle, looking at it from the intelligence community and the CIA, looking at it from the corporate angle, from NGOs, and also uh, from the church as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of the images that stick that just kind of remain with me are images of, uh, you know, um, some of the people's movements as well um, was another kind of angle as well. The FNL, the FNL. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Jack Elder gave um, he after the oral history that I recorded with him is so so wonderful. Called me back a couple weeks later and said, "Hey, here I found thirty posters in my uh, in my attic back from the the eighties from." Uh, not just from Salvador, but also from the Sandinista movement and other um, human rights issues in, in the region. And so we had some of those posters displayed alongside um, the other works that were in the exhibition. So, Great. Yeah. So let me um, ask you about responses to this exhibit, because I think, as I understand it, responses to it kind of led to um, kind of helped initiate um, further work for you. Um, Definitely. And my understanding is right that some folks just started, you know, your experience was that after, you know, people would see the exhibit and then come to you and start telling you their own personal stories of migration. Um, yeah, that's exactly right, Tyler. So when, when the exhibition opened here in San Antonio in, in the um, fall of 2014, um, at the opening, people kept coming up to me and saying, uh, you know, uh, I came from, my family came from, my deal came from. And what they were doing is, right, is they were sharing their, their own migration stories with me. And so really at that time, it just kind of sat with me. And I've often used oral history in my own art practice because I love how oral history is really history from the bottom up. And an oral history is something that's co-created um, with somebody and it provides space for somebody to, to really begin to share um, their own life. I think there's so many different ways that we gain knowledge and I love um, that the oral tradition. And so well, that combined with people's responses at the opening led me to start a new project um, called Migration Stories. And Migration Stories is a oral history project that I've been working on for, oh my goodness, now maybe seven years. Um, that really, it acknowledges that all of us have a migration story um, and right, some of those migration stories are closer um, than others. And that our migration stories have are powerful and meaningful and important, not just for our own personal lives, for our but for our communal lives as well. 
So it um, started in many ways at the opening of Northern Triangle um, because that's where really the seeds of the project began. But over those years, over the past you know seven years or so, um, I've done seven different iterations in six different cities, working with um, 238 participants. And those 238 participants represent 71 countries around the world. Wow, that's, yeah, that's fascinating work. So, so Northern Triangle leads to this, this later work in migration stories, this kind of oral history focused work. Um, I know you think a lot about kind of curation and structuring projects. Um, I imagine working with uh, on a project like this where your primary material is really the stories of others. Um, yeah. That it demands a kind of like a kind of ethical sensitivity um, in this for this kind of practice. Uh, do you want to talk about yeah how you think about the ethics of listening to and, and sharing yeah. and curating stories and some of the tensions and difficulties with that? Yeah, definitely. I can I can try to, to speak to some of that. So I think that one of the, the things that I always hold on to um, in the work that I do is that I, I never want to make work about people or make work about communities. What I want to always try to do is to make work with communities and with people. And while that may sound like just a small shift, it actually is is really a big one in the ways of, of working. And so for me, keeping that in mind and then thinking about going to um, cities like Portland, Oregon, and Tucson, Arizona, and uh, Champaign, Urbana, and Chicago, Illinois, and um, Lexington, Virginia, you know, the, all these different places that migration stories took place is I didn't want to just drop in and like get stories and then leave from there. So it was really important to me to try to think about how to ethically structure this project. And so in um, conversation with so many people that were around me, um, really ended up coming to the format of where um, migration stories began with an oral history workshop. And so I would partner with different um, institutions, whether those were universities or community organizations, and invite people to be part of a half-day training. And in the half-day training, we would talk about um, oral history and what it is and what it can be and the power of stories and spend time exploring our own stories. And then the next day or that next you know, week or whatever the project structure varied, but the people from the community who had gone through the oral history training, they were the ones who were then sitting down and doing oral histories with, with members from their own communities. And so it was important, right? So the people that are in the workshops are not only uh, gaining skills, but they're learning how to share their own story and then talking to their own neighbors, to their own community members about those stories. And in many ways, I'm just being a steward of that and helping share technology and conceptual um, uh, frameworks, and then doing some of the heavy lifting on the back end of transcription and editing and returning stories um, to people. One, one other thing that's been really beautiful about this project is thankfully I got some grant funding and we were able to produce a book for each um, iteration of it. So there's uh, a box set of seven books for it. And the, the work that is made, the oral histories, are distributed back into the community in which they're made. And that is a really, really important thing for me. And I think it has a, a beautiful um, kind of accountability built into it, but also um, counteracts the idea of going into a community and extracting something from them. But instead it is about, um, about distributing the work into those communities first, and then allowing the work to go out from that place to, to have a much broader um, reach um, one of the things too that, you know, I've mentioned that it's been about seven years or so 
um, since I've been working on this project. And I tend to work really slow because I think it gives time uh, to, uh, to make mistakes, to learn from those mistakes, but also to gain uh, you know, consensus from people and to get the people that need to be around the table around the table. Yeah, thank, thank you. One, one thing I think of uh, as just listening to you talk is, you know, the distinction maybe between community-based research, which, you know, you are doing, but also kind of community accountable research and this kind of, um, this kind of sense of responsibility you have to the people that you're working with. Um, uh, maybe just a follow-up kind of question on this, this, this question of how you curate. Um, I'm interested in how you created contexts for sharing these stories, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the oral history stuff. Um, so migration stories, I've read some of these, some of the material in these books, um, it poses this question to its participants, where are you from, right? Yeah. Um, and where are you from is an everyday and a common question, mm -hmm. um, but it's also one that can be used as a weapon, right? Yeah. Uh, to mark boundaries of non-belonging of, of, you know, uh, identity and otherness. Um, I've just finished reading uh, the Yale historian Hazel Carby's um, kind of autobiographical book, Imperial Intimacies, and she talks about growing up in England, uh, the child of a Jamaican migrant, uh, and being really harassed by this question, where are you from? Yeah. Um, she refers to it, in fact, as the question, all, you know, caps and exclamation point, just kind of chasing her. So clearly oh, yeah. migration stories is up to something different when it poses the question. Yeah. Um, it seems in this setting, it's, it's, it's a question, you know, in search of connection rather than policing boundaries. So Maybe you could just say more about how you think about that question or just. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's a great question, Tyler. Yeah. And so I think that um, I definitely want to talk about the question, but also you started kind of asking about the context in which these are shared. And so one of the things that, um, that I really consider, and I think this is a really important part when doing, uh, for me, when doing oral history interviews, is that the, um, you know, most of the times when you do this, you sit down and you sign a release, right? And in, in that release, you're giving away kind of like all of your rights. Um, to a person to, to use a story in whatever way possible. And I think the majority of people who do it, right, are very ethically minded. So I'm not trying to say that that, that it doesn't happen, but the, the, um, the way that I refer to even the releases is more of an agreement. And it's a very straightforward agreement, I'm not using a lot of legal language, but that basically talks about how the story could potentially be used. Also it gives them my information and a way for them to get their oral history interview. Um, if, if they choose to do so, which many people choose to, to receive that. And also it gives them the right to pull their story from a project at any, any given moment and talks about how though once stories are made public, right, there's only so much that we can do to pull that back. But I think that beginning a, an oral history interview in that way, right, with very clear language and talking about co-creation and giving them um, agency inside of that really helps to set the tone for people telling, telling their stories. Also, it's people from their own community that are inviting them to sit down and, and share this. And we talk about, um, about empathy and about listening um, inside of the workshop. So people are really entering into that. So, um, but yeah, but I, I think that the question that you, that you pose, right, about the, um, you know, the question, where are you from? It's so right, right, that it can be used in a way that can be really hurtful, right? Or, um, you know, in my own life, I can think about, you know, growing up, as a Salvo Puerto Rican kid in South Texas, you know, so often how it was framed to me is what are you, right? And people are like, what are you, you know? And they're really, you know, um, asking uh, out of curiosity. Most of the time I found some people are doing it to, um, to be hurtful or to bring pain. 
But right. Um, and it was a good thing for me to have to wrestle with in my own life. So I think that that phrase can be like a way um, to help you like feel um, different or set apart when you're already struggling. Right. You're like, there's a saying in Spanish, ni de aquí y ni de allá. I'm not from here or from there. It really talks about this in-between moment. I think when you're in that, right, and you're struggling, that if that is asked, that question is asked in the wrong way or is used as an attack, it can be really, really unsettling. But I think also that question can be used, if it's used in a context of care, in a context of respect, um, in a context um, where um, there is uh, kindness and generosity in it, it can actually serve as a beautiful invitation for somebody to share um, about the depths of their identity. And so I think that that is the context that was trying and, and my experience and other people's experience to point to that was created in the Migration Story Project. I think that um, you know, one of the things that in the books that you can, you can read, and those are edited transcripts, um, right? I like to always think about you have an oral history, then you have an oral history transcript, and you have an edited oral history transcript. But the editing inside of that is very, very light, right? It's just for punctuation and to do that. And you can see, um, you know, everybody is invited to respond at whatever level of vulnerability that they feel comfortable with, right? Nobody in, in the agreement says they don't, they're not forced to talk about anything. And people, the way that they respond is just so uh, beautiful. And I feel so grateful for the, the vulnerability that people have brought to this project. So yeah, as you mentioned, there's these, uh, the Migration Stories Project has been distilled into um, these small books, seven small books, I think, right? Yes. Um, with, yeah. uh, and it has different material from each uh, different location in which the workshops took place. Um, so some of them contain stories of border crossing, right? Like oral histories of them. Uh, yes. Um, but they also contain a lot of other different kinds of stories, right? Uh, and so I was reading them, I was struck by how placing these stories side by side seems to be part of maybe your maybe argument through this project, um, if I can put it that way, as if to remind pe the people of the way in which all identities are constituted through different kinds of movement. Um, do you want to talk about, yeah, what, what emerged from these workshops, these conversations, and now through these books, through this kind of intensive time of storytelling? And, and I'll add too onto that, if there are any stories that you know, that came to mind that you would want to mention or that have stuck with you in a kind of way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like, you know, um, so often I think about this as there's like the container of the project or the structure of the project, which we've just gotten done talking about. And then there's the actual content, right? The stories that are, that are inside of it. And I think that, you know, so often for me and the, the work that I do, um, it's, uh, is I, I work with archives, right? And, and trying to activate archives. And sometimes those archives exist, but then most of, or, and then other times, um, I'm creating archives in collaboration with communities. And so Migration Stories is a great example of an archive that has been created in collaboration with different communities. And then we start to think about how can we activate those? And whenever I'm thinking about the activation of them, it's usually because I've had some kind of meaningful engagement or encounter with somebody's story, with a document or a photograph. And then I'm just trying to find ways that we can create opportunities for people to have meaningful engagement with the same material. And so now, um, you know, they exist in, um, in book format, but also we've done a number of listening parties in the communities where these were recorded, where we invite people to come and listen to their own stories, um, to talk about the process of that. So that's been a really important part. But I think that maybe one, uh, one thing I'd love to do is just to talk, tell you about um, a couple of the books and read um, from uh, a little bit from them. 
uh, so that you can experience the content of that. So one of the books um, is uh, green on the spine. Each one has a different color to help to distinguish it. Um, comes from a workshop that I did with 125 high school students here in San Antonio. Um, half of them were from a world geography class and the other half were from a English as second language learning class. And so they came together and they, they on, on the first day of the workshop, they ended up writing questions that they could take home to talk to their families about their own migration stories. And then the idea was that the second day they, um, well, the second day they came back and, um, and shared the responses to those, uh, to those questions that they had talked about with their family. And the, um, after, after sharing, the idea was that the third day they were going to come together and to make a collaborative um, kind of poem or text piece from that. But the third day, the, the second day that evening was actually the, um, the day of the election and Trump came into office. So we ended up setting aside the third day to just process that uh, because that was a lot um, for many of the students. They were not expecting that. And also um, uh, many of the students um, were undocumented. And so what effect was that going to have on their lives? And so what we collectively decided was that we would use the questions as the book um, or as the, the um, product of our workshop together, but that being together and processing in that time was the most important thing. So I'd love to just read some of those questions to you. De que país vienes? Why did you move here? ¿Cómo se cruzó? What kind of problems did you have to face when you got here? Have you ever thought of going back? Was it by choice? Why not somewhere else? What parts of Europe is my family from? ¿Cuántos minutos o días o meses o años o generaciones lleva tu familia en los Estados Unidos? What's the origin of our last name? And I love reading these, uh, these questions again and remembering that these are created by 15 to 18 year olds in order to go back and talk to their own families about their own migration stories. So I often say when talking about migration stories is that one of the books is just a book of questions. Then there's also um, a book of lists, which was made um, with, uh, in collaboration with students at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. And for that, um, I invited um, workshop participants to write down every place that they had lived and then to add to that list and to write down every place that their parents had lived and add to that list by writing down every place that their grandparents had lived, their great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, great-great-great-great-great-great-great, going all the way back and you can get the idea. But to make a list going as far back as they could remember of every place that their family had ever lived. And then to spend time in silent reflection, thinking about the migration stories that exist in between each place on that list, right? Because there, there, there's one that exists for, we all have a migration story. And then um, I paired them up and they were able to share 
um, one or two of those migration stories with other people in the workshop. And then we came back together and shared out. And it's been really beautiful. I've now done this, um, this workshop or something similar to it with communities across the United States. And it's a, a really, really powerful way to begin to explore your own history. And then the other books, the five other books are more traditional kind of uh, transcripts of oral history interviews um, that people have done um, around the country. You want me to share uh, an excerpt from that or is there one that stood out to you, Tyler? From it? I mean, a lot of them stood out. Um, I mean, I, I mean, some of the stories are, um, yeah, just, yeah, very powerful just to read some of the stories. I read one about yeah. uh, a young woman who, who crossed, you know, the border in high heels um, and kind of talks about that experience. Um, uh, but yeah, please, uh, if you have one, do you, you like to yeah. share? Yeah, Anna, who you were just talking about, tells a beautiful story and haunting as well of crossing the border as a little girl to reunite with her parents. And she, all she knew was that she was showing up to, uh, um, uh, to, to meet her parents. And so I'll just read you just a, a couple of sentences from, from her story. We hid and they told us not to look up because if you look up, your eyes are going to shine. I was not even capturing why all this was happening. All I knew is that I was there because I was coming to see my parents. To top it off, I was wearing high heels. She then goes on um, to talk about um, the beauty of being um, reunited uh, with her family and, um, and talks really about um, the, the care that her parents had for her and how she takes that into caring for her own children. Uh, that, was, that story was, um, was recorded in Portland, Oregon. And in the same book, there's another really beautiful story um, of uh, someone talking about their ancestors uh, traveling over from Japan and setting up a cherry farm at the same latitude uh, in Oregon and uh, tells a story of her grandparents growing cherries and being truck farmers driving town to town to sell the produce. Another story that sticks out to me from, uh, from uh, the Craner Art Museum at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign is um, is the story of, I'm flipping to it here right now, of Alejandra. And she talks about being from El Paso and crossing over the border back and forth to Juarez every single day and having family on both sides of the border. And also, uh, well, I'm just gonna read a little bit of her, her words here because I think she says it um, so beautifully. Every time I go to El Paso, I also visit Juarez. I feel like my story hasn't concluded because I cross over even multiple times during the day sometimes, just walking over, walking back. And it's really interesting too, to see those very opposing worlds right next to each other. Sometimes there's 20 to 30 people waiting to cross. Sometimes there can be up to a hundred. Sometimes it can take 10 minutes to cross. Sometimes it can take up to two hours. And I love, you know, Alejandra is being interviewed by her friend, Allison, um, in this, and I'm still in touch with, with both of them. And I love it because then it flips and uh, they end up talking, Allison, Allison starts sharing um, her migration story and her family's from Canada. And um, she shares this really beautiful bit about a truck that I would love to read for you. I got a truck from my great uncle a bunch of years ago in the mid 2000s, and it was a, 19, it was a 1978 model. So it was really old at that time. Like it was already 25 years old and he'd only put like 25,000 kilometers on it. So like 12,000 miles. 
So in like 25 years, he'd driven 12,000 miles. And that was just because he just doesn't go anywhere because that's just where everything is. And I like to think about it. Um, I think both those stories kind of um, uh, together talk about um, how close something to be, but how far something can be even inside, inside of that distance. And, but I always think about that odometer reading inside of it. Yeah, an odometer is a kind of measure of time and place and uh, yeah, we're using this, yeah. So one question um, to, I guess I wanna ask about, you know, these two projects together is, is yeah, how to read them together. Um, um, maybe just a comment on them, right? With Northern Triangle, right? We talked about this kind of multiple angles that it takes for trying to address um, what was the border crisis in 2014, but also we could think of in the present day yeah. Um, in the kind of long view. And then, you know, on the other hand, migration stories, which seems to take to localize and humanize um, migration by sending to stories of movement and displacement and relocation. Um, yes, I'm wondering how you think about these perspectives together, if, if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I think you're totally right um, in thinking that the connection between Northern Triangle and migration stories is one is looking at the structures, right? And um, the, the policies that are things that are happening that create the push and pull of migration, right? What is, what are those things that pull us? So economic opportunity or, um, you know, uh, maybe, uh, you know, kind of thinking of, of trying to step up and trying to get to a better place, but then also thinking about uh, the things that push us, right? And so war, civil war, uh, famine, uh, the violence that is there, and what are the things that are, are creating those? And so looking at it and realizing that you cannot disconnect the two. I remember in 2014 being so angry of listening to radio um, stories or seeing the news and all people were talking about was how people were, were crossing illegally, but nobody was talking about yet about the conditions that were created that people were fleeing from and they were seeking asylum from. And then I did see people begin to talk about that. And it's important that you have to hold those together. But I think that also that inside of each policy decision that's made, inside of each corporate decision that's made, inside of each development decision that's made is it affects people, it affects lives. And I think that migration story really begins to show that of um, it's, it's easy to get lost in, in the theory or just in, in the policy, but to remember that it's people's lives that are being affected um, inside each one of those. And then to also remember that it's not just about other people. It's not just about those people, but all of us have been in that situation. All of us have a migration story. And whether that um, goes back to, you know, coming over on the Mayflower or whether it's about crossing a, a, a border at the south of our country um, last month, we're all connected in those ways together. One of the participants, if I'm right, did come over on the Mayflower, right? That's, these are both in these stories. Is that is that <laughs> definitely? Yeah, they did. There is. Um, I think there's. Uh, yeah, one person uh, who talks about uh, their family being able um, to to um, uh, to trace that back to the Mayflower. And then there's also other um, people who talk about the pain of erasure, right? And the slave trade and what that stole from their family of not being able to tell their story. So both connected to ships and crossing the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very powerful, um, very powerful work, Mark. Uh, I wonder, um, do, do, how do you see this work um, going forward? Um, uh, do you have any kind of projects on the horizon? Uh, 
Yeah, where are you at now? Definitely. Well, thankfully, um, you know, the the box set of, of books has, um, you know, it came out uh, right before I finished printing them and getting it all bound and everything. I print, print them here in the studio on a risograph uh, printer. Uh, but all of that happened right before the pandemic. And so uh, things are slowed down a bit. But we have done uh, five of the um, community distribution or listening events so far. Uh, the majority of those have been over Zoom. And actually this week, I will do the last one or one of the last ones, excuse me, um, with the School of the, Art, School of the Art Institute in Chicago. And so um, thankful to have the book kind of making or the box set kind of making its way out into the world. But I think that, you know, one of the things that I've learned about so many of the projects that I work on is that I typically say, okay, I'm done. Oh, I'm going to like kind of walk away from a project. And then as I'm trying to like walk away to start working on something else, I like glance back over my shoulder at it and I see it from a new perspective, right? Or I think about a new way to activate um, the archives. And so uh, my feeling is that that is what's going to happen with migration story. Um, I have long had a, a dream of having um, the audio housed online and um, be, people being able to access it in some ways or having the interviews live as a part of a, a larger oral history archive. And so my sense is that um, as I continue to take the steps forward from here, that some of those opportunities will present itself. Wonderful. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, and I have a set of the books. They're, they're, they're beautiful uh, aesthetically. And yeah, so I hope listeners are able to kind of take a look at your work um, and read through them. Uh, I would also ask just to jump back to the Borderland Collective. Is it right that you have a book project with that, with the Borderland Collective as well? Uh, we do. Yeah, we just uh, are finalizing a book contract um, to do a, a publication looking at the last 10 years of projects that we've been working on um, with communities. Northern Triangle um, is just one of those um, about half of the projects that we do uh, have been focused on collaborations with young people and empowering them to tell their own stories from their own perspectives. And so, yeah, we're really looking forward to that one coming out. And that should be hopefully in fall of 2022. So. Great. You'll look out for it. It's exciting work. Um, that's all the questions I have for you, Mark. Were there any questions that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you yet? Uh, I love that question. Uh, but no, there, there are none. Uh, Tyler, I can't just want to just express my extreme uh, gratitude for your time today um, to be able to talk about this. And I know that we're going to be uh, including some other online components for uh, people to engage with. And so um, invite people to engage with those materials and also to engage um, with the Migration Stories book. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Tyler. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.